the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. Our recent shows in Magic Markets Premium have included technology platforms like Spotify, pure plays on American consumers like Winnebago, a recap on FedEx and even Tupperware and its near bankruptcy. For 99 Rand a month or 990 Rand a year, there is simply no better way to learn about the world of investing. Visit magic-markets.com for more. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Welcome to episode 122 of Magic Markets, coming to you at least from my perspective from a stage six load shedding infested South Africa. It's not easy at the moment. We may even have a cockroach infestation based on an article that I read or at least saw the headline of earlier and then decided not to read any further because it was just far too depressing. Uh, normally, Mo, your internet is broken in Canada, and that's about the only problems you ever seem to have. And even that is annoyingly working today. So welcome to Magic Markets from your little slice of paradise up there. Ghost, always a pleasure doing this. I mean, I may have power. Don't jinx my internet. We know how unreliable Canadian internet can be. And uh, But yeah, let's uh, let's have some fun. I mean, we're not here to, to lament the stages of load shedding. Uh, I think as we speak, I see one of our guests' power appears to have gone out. So, I mean, this you can't script this, guys. But as we just said that, the power went down. I'm going to stop speaking about Eskom and I'm going to go, so I'm going to let you introduce our guest today because I'm going to laugh too hard uh, if uh, any of your power goes out on this call. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, Mo, we can literally either laugh or cry and I don't even know how much more laughing I can do on this. So I'm just going to move on now and welcome our guests to the show. So that would be Pete Little from Anchor Capital. He is currently sitting in the dark after his power just went out, which is a great shame as he had a very pretty back even though we never use the video on these recordings just as well because right now I can literally only see his teeth Matt Norwood Young you laughed off your video earlier from tech issues so I can't even see your teeth and Dino Zuccolo from Westbrook everything is working your side which is lovely and you are certainly no stranger to the listeners of Magic Market so welcome to the show we have no shortage of voices we do have a shortage of power but we will get through it anyway and I think let's kick off with some background to Anchor Capital. It was listed on the JSE up until a few years ago. It's very much still an operational business. It's now just no longer a listed company. I think Pete, Matt, whichever one of you wants to take this, you know, tell us a bit more about what you do at Anchor Capital. And then I suggest we kick it over to Dino, who can explain why Anchor and Westbrook are both on the show this week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us, Ghost and Mo. I'll, I'll jump in here. Matthew Nord-Young speaking. Uh, I, I'm assuming that most listeners have at least a base uh, level of understanding of our business, but I'll give the broad brushstroke. So we're about an 11 and a half year old investment and asset management business. Um, we've grown the team and business consistently over the course of that period of time to a stage now where we've specialized on three very distinct channels. So wealth management, with which you know hopefully manifests itself in people like myself sitting in rooms uh, with clients and saying, what's the problem and how can we help solve it? Asset management, which which Peter Little is, the, uh, I guess, the face of that for us today. 
Um, and effectively, that is a, a team of highly qualified people that we've attracted to come and join us from uh, investment institutions around the country and around the world. Um, that business builds asset management or investment management products. Uh, some of those include uh, the, the, the likes of kind of the alternative set, um, but we don't have an absolutely exhaustive set of uh, investments that we utilize. And I guess through that channel, we've developed a relationship with a business like Westbrook. Um, and then uh, stockbroking, and, and we are JSC licensed and, and members, uh, but we trade uh, you know, through platforms all over the world. Uh, the business now has about 350 staff, offices all over the country, Mauritius, London, um, a hedge fund guy that works with us out of, out of the States. Um, and we manage or advise on about 110 billion rand in client investment assets. So that we think puts us as probably the biggest of the independent investment managers in the country, independent of the big banks and asset managers um, and teams. And, um, and we, I think that's really only important for, for this conversation uh, in that, you know, with the kind of size and scale that we've got, you know, we can operate in the likes of a, of a alternatives uh, arena, uh, put in the right degree of research, allocate the right bodies to it, and make sure that we're getting the best solutions for our clients. Yeah, and guys, maybe just to answer Ghost's question, Dino from Westbrook here, you know, to give you the idea of the thinking around why we have the, the guys from Anchor Capital on the call today is... Anchor is uniquely positioned, in my opinion, to give us a different perspective on the world of alternatives relative to the conversations we've had over the last sort of 18 months. I think we've done a lot of conversations, Ghost Mo, around alternatives from the product provider perspective. You know, why do we like alternatives? Why do we think that they're relevant? Uh, what is my perception as the, as the head of product development and distribution at Westbrook around what clients want and why? Um, but, but what we wanted to do today is turn it on, our, on its head. You know, Westbrook has got a, a deep base of distribution, but really the focus from our perspective, aside from certain key direct clients, is to place our products through wealth advisors. And I think Anchor Capital is a great example of a long-term relationship that we've sort of nurtured and built over a number of years. And Anchor, to Matt's point, are uniquely positioned to understand a few things. They understand Westbrook. They understand the world of alternatives. They understand clients. Um, you know, as Matt says, they're a very big business with deep reach. And actually, they have a, a, a listed markets background. And so I think the, the movement into alternatives, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, Matt Pete, is, is something that's relatively new in the anchor context on the greater scheme of things as well. And so the idea for today was to have a conversation around alternatives in client portfolios. You know, um, what are the pros and cons? And, and to really get an, an understanding from the guys at Anchor around how they are used practically by clients, how they're used by Anchor, and uh, to challenge me on any questions that, that might frustrate them. Yeah, I want to jump in here because I, I like the fact, you know, that we're closing the loop. I think you're right. We've discussed alternatives a lot with yourselves as kind of the, the, the investment or the product provider. Uh, I want Pete, I want Matt to put Dino through his paces on, on this particular podcast as well. So I'm, I'm certainly, you know, looking forward to that, but almost leveraging off Dino's last question, right? Is that, you know, what really makes alternatives attractive to anchor from a, a client's perspective? You know, Dino's kind of touched on the pros and the cons. I'm also interested to see, you know, you you've guys you guys have indicated the kind of scale of your assets under management. How big is alternatives currently in that space from an asset allocation perspective? Because generally you get kind of a throwaway number. Investors put like a 10% of their portfolio into alternatives. Uh, but I think increasingly over the course of the last several years, certainly in the institutional space and now increasingly in the private client space, 
alternatives have become remarkably more popular. So what are you guys seeing on the ground at Anchor in terms of the size of that allocation in clients' portfolios, as well as how they view the relative trade-offs and the pros and cons of investing in alternatives? Yeah, so Pete, um, I'll jump in there. Um, so the alternatives business inside of Anchor actually isn't all that new. Um, we've been managers of hedge funds since almost the inception of our, our business. But hedge funds makes up you know, a small portion of what the Alternatives University has the ability to expose clients to. We've always liked uh, the construct of the alternative space because it's quite difficult to have a sustainable, meaningful edge in you know, broad portions of, of financial markets um, and where you can uh, extricate asymmetric return from markets or asymmetric return from opportunities, uh, you know, risk relative to kind of the return that you might be able to achieve. Um, we like vehicles that allow you the opportunity to do that. We've also had quite a simplistic view on alternatives in terms of the ones that we've manufactured ourselves. So, you know, we just think that they provide you with a broader toolkit. And if you have the right uh, operator of that, of that toolkit, hopefully that gives you a better opportunity to achieve you know the right risk adjusted returns for the clients but that's that's not not necessarily always the case and that hasn't necessarily always been the case across the kind of breadth of the alternative landscape here in South Africa um from an allocation perspective because uh, you, you're gonna I guess you're gonna ask us for a, for an answer there on, on a number so inside of our business I think we've got about six percent of the total assets that we advise on allocated to alternatives at the moment um that's not necessarily a function of what uh, what we believe uh, alternatives should be from an exposure perspective. We believe it should be materially higher than that. Um, and over time, we would expect our business to get um, more, you know, to have exposure that heads more towards the 20% of assets rather than kind of the 6% of assets. But the reality is that when investing client money, ultimately it's their money and their risk profile or appetite to consume risk or understand the types of products that often have required some degree of sophistication results in a lower exposure than what ordinarily it would be, you know, placing or attempting to place a client into. But, you know, at its core, um, we like the idea of being able to achieve returns that aren't necessarily linked directly to a market cycle or the kind of vicissitudes of what we've experienced over the course of the last while. Um, we like, well, we, we can get into the reasons why we like kind of the breadth of alternatives later, but from a, from a number perspective, we would expect that that number will get up to, you know, in the region of about 20% of client exposure over the course of the next couple of years. So Pete, I'm going to throw this one at you and I'm keen to get your view on how clients understand this alternative assets universe to the extent that they do. You know, do they understand alternative assets properly? Do they get surprised by what tends to sit inside this umbrella term? I must say, I'm in the finance industry and I've certainly learned a ton from Dino and the rest of the Westbrook team over the various podcasts that we have done with them here on Magic Markets. So I can understand for clients who are not in the finance industry, the world of alternative assets must seem very esoteric for sure. And it doesn't really need to be, does it? Many of these assets are actually just common sense things that people would probably want to be invested in once they understand what they are. Yeah, I think the I think the term is maybe sometimes a little scarier than that than the actual um, products. And this is where you know, going into individual products like the ones that that Dino and Co work on at Westbrook, where you're able to kind of draw through all the lingo and the sort of asymmetric returns and things and just explain to people that we're what we're trying to achieve here we're kind of lending money to people who need it for bridge financing of property for example that's a very understandable concept so 
I think I think sort of drilling down into the, the sort of specific opportunities within alternatives to their simplest uh, possible format uh, makes it much more consumable for investors rather than saying okay you're going to put you know whatever the number is six ten percent in alternatives and that's you know clients are thinking derivatives and leverage and all sorts of weird stuff that they don't understand. Um, but if you can talk them through kind of the underlying alternatives, why they, why we expect that to make money for them over time and, and why we think they're kind of earning that particular return, then it's much more palatable for most investors. Now, Peter, I want to I jump in there and almost kind of leverage off that point because it, it goes back to the whole asset allocation point. We've kind of discussed how big alternatives are or maybe should be in a portfolio, arguably, let's call it the 20% mark. But you've raised a very important point. And that point is, you know, just making it simple for investors, you know, they can then relate that to a traditional asset allocation to say, okay, this should be viewed as fixed income, for example, you know, this is bridge financing, or this should be viewed as equity. And it might be private equity or unlisted equity, it might be bridge financing, so it's not buying a bond. But in terms of your experience in, in that space, you know, contextualizing where the opportunity set lies from a client appetite perspective, I think would be useful to me to say, you know, where has the mix gone? We've spoken about a lot of stuff with Dino and the Westbrook team in terms of they've got the entire capital stack. They've got the equity component. They've got the fixed income component all in the alternative space. From the client's perspective, from an appetite perspective, how are you seeing that stack up? Are people more interested in kind of equity type payoff profiles? Are people more interested in fixed income, de-risked and, you know, kind of getting a reliable coupon? Is it income orientated? What does that look like on the ground? Yeah, I would say probably not necessarily income income oriented. And and I would say a lot of the stuff we do tends to be offshore. So there that's kind of long-term money for, for, for clients. They're not you know funding their day-to-day with that. So the income is less important. I'd say it's more the sort of, understanding why you're earning return and and sort of the predictability of return because the reality is kind of one of the biggest hurdles to going into the alternative space for clients is usually the liquidity so there's there's typically uh, significantly less liquidity and and clients generally see that as an opportunity cost so I'm locking up my money what if I need it at some point and I can't get it back Um, and so I think sort of helping clients understand that for the, for a lot of our clients, they don't actually need the liquidity, particularly the high net worth guys or guys that are managing assets that are inevitably going to be passed on to the next generation. You don't need the liquidity and overcoming that sort of opportunity cost associated with with locking up your, your money is perhaps more in, uh, important than, than that. But, but ultimately understanding why you're earning the return. So, you know, kind of, as you, as you say, if we can talk through to the underlying, you're, you're lending money for bridge financing, you're taking long, short equity exposure. And I think these, these things um, help give clients a sort of more stable return profile that's not as susceptible to, to, to market sentiment that you would see in the public market. So you're not kind of getting whipped around by news headlines that are driving you know, uh, listed stocks and bonds up and down. Um, and so, so ultimately the return experience for the client over the long term tends to be more stable and more predictable. And that's, that's something I would say clients are pretty excited about in general. Pete, I, I, Dino, I, I just I wanted to jump in there and actually ask a question that interests me. You, you guys are in the position, I suppose, where you are often reporting to clients. And the one thing to touch on your point there is that in the traditional market, you've got a price and that price is reported quite frequently. You know, in our world, as you'll know well, generally we report quarterly um, and in some instances every six months. 
you know, the, the advantage of less frequent pricing is the stability in pricing, to your point. But is it not, do you see it to be a challenge for your clients as well? Because the frequency with which they receive updates in terms of what's going on is much shorter. Yeah, I mean, liquidity for me is a real double-edged sword because clients inevitably are not excited about the sort of sentiment that that whips their nerve around. So you see your kind of savings being driven around by, by, by sentiment and headlines and things like that. And so, um, you know, that's obviously something clients don't want. So, so the, the benefits of, of not having that opportunity cost of locking up your savings also comes with a, with a con of, of, you know, obviously your, your assets being whipped around. And that, and that almost psychological impact weighs on clients and often forces or, or often encourages clients to do things that don't make sense in the long term. So you're kind of panicking the, the markets or the public markets have already kind of factored in that panic and are, and are down a bit. And that's when clients want to start getting out. And so I think that that liquidity and the sentiment and the psychological impact that has on people, you know, can for investors that understand it properly can be can be offset by just giving up some of that liquidity that inevitably most investors don't necessarily need. You know, people don't necessarily need access to their money twenty four seven. It's just just kind of the psychology of of that opportunity cost and overcoming that. And I think the benefits with that are, are it makes the journey kind of much more palatable for your for your average client. I want to jump in again because I think there's so much interesting stuff coming out of the woodwork here, right? So, you know, that psychology of, of, of clients and in terms of, you know, not getting the sentiment to mess with their headspace almost for me ties into another important dimension of alternatives. And certainly when discussing alternatives with, for example, a company like Anchor or with Westbrook that have operations both in South Africa as well as outside of South Africa, because certainly in listed markets, you know, you, you see that sentiment messing people up where they're super bearish on South Africa. They tend to take their money out at the wrong time. Then things reverse and they bring their money back and everyone loses it because everyone thinks they're an FX trader. Now, when it comes to alternatives, maybe you strip some of that volatility, some of that sentiment out of it. Uh, what does that look like again on the ground? I, I, I'm going to direct this to either Pete or to Matt, because I know from Westbrook's perspective, we've unpacked both the domestic opportunity set and then extensively. We've spoken to their team in London. We've spoken to their team in the US as well. But from the client's perspective, how is the psychology with regards to global allocation versus South African, let's call it local allocation? And does it almost make it easier to place an alternative investment in a client's portfolio in a global sense and then get your, your, your global diversification because it's an alternative, because you don't get that noise messing with the, with the investor's psychology? Yeah, I'll, I guess I'll jump in there because alternatives has quite a broad uh, you, you know, we being we saying alternatives as a as a single entity when when ultimately it's you know massive universe. And so you know domestic or global, you should have exposure to alternatives in both territories. Um, but I think the starting point of your question was more a how much exposure to South Africa relative to the rest of the world, and that's more more. So we we think about it in terms of of matching your assets and liabilities first. So, you know, for most people who have a physical footprint here in South Africa, they're going to have some degree of, of South African liability base. So whether that's, you know, the, the cost of, of living over a period or whether that's the expenses of, of children in, in schools or, you know, you know universities or, or, or taking care of elderly parents, whatever it is, you, you've got a, you know, you've, you've got a domestic uh, liability base. Uh, from there, you know, the, the kind of 
limitations on the South African market re- relating to lack of diversification, you know, even even within the listed environment, to be considering uh, you know, globalization, and and then and then de-risking your situation from a from a South African context perspective, and then to think about alternatives in, in in so so we would you know we we've been on the page of 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 encouraging clients to to globalize or externalize capital over time, and, and certainly I think. The first equity money that we invested was actually offshore, not uh, not here in South Africa. Then onto the alternatives piece, uh, I think it's more about understanding what uh, you know. So, so who you're investing in? So, so someone like Westbrook or, or you know any of the other providers of of alternatives in the space. Um, what are they? You know, what are they? So, I guess it comes down to what Peter was saying. What are they actually doing with that money how are they deriving returns from the part of the market that they're trying to try trying to get those returns from do they have a, a, a high quality uh, um, team uh, do they deliver consistently um, do they have a, a some degree of edge or a sustainable edge that we can then pass on to clients um, and and you know you need to be in a position where you can tick all of those boxes long before you you make the decision to allocate a portion of capital to any type of alternative investment and then it's un- about understanding what role that alternative will play in the broader portfolio you know and that's someone that has the appetite for for a high degree of you know equity type risk might well want to be invested in in the type of alternatives that either enhance that type of risk return matrix or or you know or vice versa people who want some degree of uh, stability in the portfolio might well be turning towards kind of the the income orientated type investments that uh, that we've had the bulk of our exposure to through through the Westbrook uh, alternatives offerings. So that's a very helpful comment and it actually leads me very nicely into the point that I wanted to touch on. We've learned a lot from Westbrook over a number of shows now about their debt-led alternatives and as we know the alternative asset class ranges all the way from yield plays at one end through to pure equity right at the other. And my question is, have investors moved from wanting more equity in what was a lower interest rate, lower inflation environment into potentially wanting more of a yield play as we've moved into this environment? If that's so, then I can certainly understand why the Westbrook product suite is of great interest to Anchor, notwithstanding the fact that there is pure play private equity inside Westbrook. But goodness knows there's a lot of really interesting yield-led stuff as well. Yeah, so so I think, I mean, obviously... We've been in a very unusual environment by global standards, where where there was, you know, where where interest rates were were zero for for an extended period of time, and you needed to try and extract returns from from markets for clients that delivered in the yield, you know, in the yield category. So so the the kind of the basic sixty forty equity fixed income split um, allocation has been to some degree fundamentally broken for some time it's not to say that it'll be permanently fundamentally broken but but certainly you know the, the environment that we've come from has, has has left us in that position and and so to to complement or augment the portion of the portfolio that would have ordinarily been exposed to fixed income which was which contained a very high degree of risk uh, with with you know cert- with no return um, you know we, we started to pursue the type of solution that the Westbrook guys uh, built out. So, so you know that did definitely lead us towards the the, the Westbrook environment and, and kind of the type of yield products that, that we've had our clients invest in. That being said, I actually think that you know when you look at the the real shift in or the real kind of moment of of, of 
the, the world's understanding that there was this this break in the in the old school kind of 60 40 split style of a- allocation was last year where you know there was no place to hide so equities fixed income you know everything was was under pressure certainly from kind of march to november last year um, and and in that environment you know clients really remind you and 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 it's it's you need to you know, be brave enough to stay the course on, on some of your allocations. But you're reminded that clients don't actually care that much whether, you know, you happen to be a, a growth manager during a period of time where value is in vogue or, you know, whether you they actually want some degree of absolute return inside of a portfolio. And alternatives have the ability to deliver that uh, during the periods of time to, there's no, look, there's no guarantee that your provider is going to deliver on that on that ambition. You know, and I do think that over time, investors are becoming more absolute return mindseted than you know than, than what they were certainly when I entered the market. Matt, I'd like to ask you a question just on that point, which is: Have you found that clients are comfortable with the concept of a percentage or, or a split in their portfolio to alternatives, irrespective? And like, let me contextualize the question. We've gone through cycles where listed equities are flying. And I can imagine that the, the conversation with the client around directing some of their flows away from listed equities into alternatives in that environment must be quite tough. Now we're in the other world, right, where listed equities or, or the, some of the traditional markets have been quite volatile and tough. And so we've, at least in our business, seen a lot of flows to alternatives. And I suppose what I'm trying to unpack is whether that is like a wide scale adoption of alternatives as a, as a key element of a, of a well diversified investment portfolio whether it's a, like a bit of a reaction to what's going on in, in the traditional market side? Both, do you know? So it's both. I, I don't think that it's wide-scale adoption. And, and, and remember that, you know, I, I don't know what your kind of total assets are, but like a, a seismic shift in your business doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a seismic shift across the entirety or the breadth of the market, you know, of a six or seven yeah. trillion rand market, um, you know, kind of a, a rounding error of that makes a big difference in the alternative space in South Africa, Africa because our base is quite low. Um, but I do think that there's certainly more awareness of the, the product set or the breadth of the product set. But I think the the big disclaimer that I would put is that you know the the the, the people listening to this need to you know need to be informed of and averse of how the operator is going to extract value from the part of the market that they operate in and you know not not all alternatives are born equal and certainly not all alternative managers are kind of equal in their ability to to deliver so that would be that would be part of it but i I do think that over time look you know where you where you are right is you know we've all been in the environment where the fact sheet says that you've done 30 percent in equities in the last year And, and and that's a you know that's a difficult time for clients to want to take their foot off the gas uh, but the reality is that that's what your wealth manager should be should be doing for you and saying you know those are the times when you you, you best place to take risk off the table and not necessarily add to it so i think environmentally it's been it's been a good season for for the alternative story and from a kind of longer term secular theme perspective i'm pretty confident that you know we if we look back on on this moment in five or six years time 
um, you know, you'll say that this was kind of the the stage of like the early stage adopters in in the space. I, I mean, in the South African space, and I think that we're quite well behind where kind of global markets have been from an alternatives perspective. Yeah, I think you know it, it's an important point, and I want to almost backtrack a little and bring these two points together, right? Because on the one hand, you've got the early adopters. You've got you know we, we've discussed allocations, how an ideal is maybe twenty percent. Uh, we're currently running below that in, in the South African market. Uh, Matt, you also raised a very important point in terms of, you know, in bad times, your 60-40 hasn't worked because all listed assets kind of correlate, you know, the correlations go to one in, in bad times and alternatives don't do that. So, I mean, that for me makes a compelling investment case. You know, in my own world, alternatives have always been a very material part of the portfolio. Uh, and, you know, I want to almost ask this, this question directly. So it's either to Matt or to Pete, whoever wants to jump in and, and answer this. What are the challenges that you're finding right now? You know, what makes it difficult for you guys to kind of convince clients to move up that allocation kind of percentage to get to that 20% mark? Why is the South African market still at the kind of sub 20% level when globally you're seeing, you know, this is the purple patch. Alternatives have literally the last couple of years have had a phenomenal time. I mean, we've spoken to Dino. We know that the, the AUM are growing, you know, quite nicely, very healthily. But again, bringing that back to the investor, to the client side, what have been some of the key hurdles that you've come across in those discussions that you've had with clients uh, in terms of bumping up the allocation and maybe convincing them of what seems to be a reasonably intuitive investment thesis? So, so Pete, I'll take the first half. You can take the second half. I, I think, um, you, you know, you have had a, a massive emergence of, of um, investment in, in structured products, for instance. That's an alternative. And, and that's, you know, that's grown, um, that's grown outsized relative to the rest of what the alternative space has done. And secondly, still in, you know, the kind of high net worth or ultra high net worth memory bank in, in the South African context, you've got the underperformance or the, you know, the kind of almost breaking of the, of, of the contract um, that, that hedge funds, uh, you know, presumably had with clients over the 2008 period where, where, you know, they theoretically should have been hedging against risk and, and, you know, in the, in the construct of how people understood hedge funds at that stage. And many of them underperformed, you know, even, even kind of equity markets. And so you didn't feel like you got inside the tin what was written down the side of the tin. And so changing that from a psych- psychology perspective and sentiment perspective, I think is a longer term thing than, you know, just having witnessed what happened, uh, what happened over the course of the last 18 months. Uh, that being said, you know, in in over the, this period, so so since COVID, you've seen a lot of even the traditional long short equity managers standing, you know, head and shoulders above what the market did over the period, and 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 delivering on that promise that you know that the products made. So so I think I also think that that uh, the understanding of risk has evolved dramatically over the course of the last thirteen or fourteen years in in the you know in in the management of of the alternative space and so so i do think that the, the the entire industry is a lot more mature than it was um you know all that time ago and i think that as clients start to appreciate the kind of the maturity of the this part of the market um again i think that that will then uh, uh sustain or, or or assist in this self-fulfilling kind of prophecy which is the ability for alternatives to to, to deliver over time yeah, no, I, th- I think just to add to what Matt was saying there, often, you know, like in theory, going into alternatives makes sense and it's reducing your risk. But in practice, I think a big hurdle for a lot of the clients is 
um, it doesn't seem to be de-risking when you don't understand what's going on in the investment you know, allocation. So it's very easy for most clients to understand what you know, First National Bank or Apple or one of these companies does. So as you move into the alternative space, the sort of complexity of some of these strategies makes investors believe that they're riskier because they don't understand. So I think a lot of the sort of path to higher allocations involves education and kind of going back to what we said in the beginning, going down to the kind of core drivers of the returns. What are what are these alternative managers actually doing and, and why are they being compensated for that? And I think that'll take some time. Yeah, I mean, Pete, just to echo what you're saying, I think that is so much of my of my daily struggle is, you know, what we do is, is complex. There's a reason that one can extract an outsized return relative to the level of risk that you need to take. I mean, we've discussed there's, there's various premia. There's speed premia, there's size premia, there's complexity premia. Um, and a lot of what we do is we, 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 we play in the world of complexity in order to charge up for, for areas where we think that the risk is, is lower than the return. But to, to discuss that, and then to overlay tax structures and access points and lock-in profiles and liquidity and all sorts of things above that for your average client is not a simple conversation to have. And, and then I think what one does mistakenly is one confuses a higher level of complexity to mean more risk. Uh, and, and that isn't necessarily always the case. And this is a conversation I, I have a lot with clients is that you can have a listed market product that is riskier than an alternative and just because it's listed doesn't make it less risky and that the inverse is true too. So I think you're on a journey here and that journey is going to take some time and wide scale adoption is going to, is going to be born or, or, or out of, I suppose, education is the first thing. Access is the second. We haven't discussed it here and we won't bore our, our listeners with all the details around why it's hard to access unlisted illiquid product. And the third is just the, the availability of products. You know, I'm not aware of many South African-based managers or managers focused on South African clients that try to offer clients a suite of, of global alternatives across the risk spectrum and across the capital stack. So we're certainly on a journey. We're right at the beginning. Um, and I like the way Matt articulated what potentially the, the outcome could be at the end. Now, before we wrap up, Dino, I think we can all agree that you have gotten off way too easily here we are pretty much out of time but i would like to give the team from anchor the opportunity to ask you one question with hopefully a fairly concise answer so anchor team go ahead what would you like to ask dino yeah i can i can have a crack so so dino obviously the sort of recent turmoil with the u.s banking crisis and um you know how that seems to be impacting people's perception of what might happen in commercial real estate and and um Obviously, you guys are on the forefront of that. What's your perspective on on how credit conditions are tightening and whether that's sort of creating risk or opportunity for you guys? Thanks, Pete. I think the most difficult part of that question is that Ghost asked me for a concise answer. But let me try my best. So, look, I think talking to clients over the course of the last while on their perspective, I think a lot of people are rightly concerned about real estate, just given the degree of inverse correlation between sort of rising uh, rising interest rates and the valuation consequences that that has on real estate. The, the answer to your question, Pete, is that I think what happens in times of volatility and complexity, like where we are now, and, and like if we just go back over the last few months, I think the world was convinced that we were in 
when SVB first went went bust and then the bailout happened, I think the world all agreed that we were going into a declining interest rate cycle. Now, and thereafter, there seemed to be a pivot, and then it's you know the, the the perception of the world was increasing interest rates, and I'm still not entirely sure. You guys will probably be better versed to know what the future holds, but certainly volatility prevails. And what happens in times of volatility and in times where, where, where there's a lot of complexity and concern in the world is that the incumbent providers of capital pull back. So what have we seen in the markets? We've seen a few things. Firstly, um, I'd say the, the appetite for real estate has pulled back quite a bit on the investor side. Interestingly, that does present you with a lot of opportunities. You've got to be very careful which opportunities you take in that world, given, again, that if interest rates do continue to rise, that will be tough for real estate. So we've actually done quite a few ungeared real estate acquisitions offshore at the moment. Um, in, the, in the credit world, it's very good for a player like ourselves. And the reason is that the incumbent providers of capital in times like this generally pull back in favor of existing portfolio management and away from the writing of new credits. And that means that we can pick and choose which deals we want with more authority and negotiate harder on price than what we were able to in the past. Does credit quality work worsen in these, in, these, in these instances? Absolutely. But the nice thing is that if you've got an experienced investment team who has an investment risk philosophy and approach centered around capital preservation, you can mitigate your risk to acceptable levels. So uh, like the old adage is true, in, in times of extreme uh, volatility and, dif and, and financial difficulty opportunities also abound. I mean, I, I was, I was, as an anecdote, looking back at how many incredible buying opportunities there were in COVID, uh, and and ruining missed opportunities there. And I'm not, you know, we're not quite in the black swan event that COVID was, but certainly at a microcosm level, there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, and that's the one area where op alternatives are different to listed equities is that Matt made the point around scale and how small we are. We're intentionally small because. You can only play in, in, in niches of markets where there's asymmetry in pricing relative to risk at a small scale. As soon as you get too big, you begin to capture the market and then it becomes quite hard to, to outperform. Ghost, I hope that was sufficiently succinct. No, I think you've done well there, Dino. Thank you so much. And to the team from Anchor Capital, thank you to you as well for fitting this in during a crazy week of load shedding. It really is tough in South Africa at the moment. And hopefully you've learned something here as our listeners about alternative assets, about how this world works between businesses like Westbrook and Anchor Capital. For those of you who are keen to contact any of our guests today, you can reach out to Pete or Matt through the anchorcapital.co.za website or find them on social media. Similarly, you could reach out to Dino on social media directly or visit westbrook.co.za for more information. To our listeners, to our guests, thank you so much. And I look forward to bringing you another episode of Magic Markets with Mohamed Nala, my partner, next week. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.